Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The Supreme Court reviews a law favoring California farmworker unions. A fundamental tenet of labor organizing is the ability to communicate with workers, to convey information. I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Thousands of inmates in California jails are spending years behind bars while they await trial. In San Francisco, where you know, only about 5% of the population is black, 50% of the unsentenced inmates who've been there for, for more than a year are black. How feces could shed light on the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines. And from our Port of Entry podcast, a cross-border love story that's not about romance. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Today is the birthday of the late labor and civil rights activist Cesar Chavez, observed in California as an official holiday. Now, almost 30 years after Chavez's death, a key part of his legacy is in jeopardy. Earlier this month, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in a case surrounding a 1975 California law that affords union organizers limited access to farms to organize workers. Growers contend the law violates their property rights, while unions and the California Department of Justice say it's necessary to protect the right of farm workers to unionize. Joining me to discuss the case is Richard Paul, a founding partner at Paul Plevin LLP, as well as a professor at the University of San Diego School of Law, specializing in employment and labor law. Richard, welcome. Glad to be with you. Let's start by giving us some background on this case. What is the basis of this original 1975 law, and why are we seeing a challenge to it now? The basis of the access regulation was a recognition that agricultural labor is fundamentally different than labor in the private sector elsewhere. Seasons are short, and at the time, many of the uh, workers lived on the premises. A fundamental tenet of labor organizing is the ability to communicate with workers. Workers have a right to receive information, and union organizers have a right to convey information. So the origin of the rule was the frank recognition that in the short season where election cycles are very short, an expedited method of getting information to farmers, farm workers, so they could make intelligent votes was necessary. That's the origin of the rule itself. The basic challenge by the uh, growers is that the rule has become uh, out of date. 
Back in uh, 1975, when the act was passed, and shortly thereafter, when the regulation was adopted, uh, there weren't sufficient alternate means of communicating with farm workers. But now there are, uh, through cell phones, social media, and the like. Uh, communication is essential, and the growers in their petition observe that none of these workers actually lived on the premises at the farms that were involved, and so there was really no need uh, for a regulation that, that allows outsiders to come onto the premises. Do other states give unions the right to enter farms and speak with workers, or is this unique to California? It's, it is unique to California in this respect. Federal labor law governs labor relations generally in the private sector, but it excludes agricultural labor relations from its coverage. So uh, states are free to have their own versions of the National Labor Relations Act. California has by far the most developed version and by far the most liberal access regulation. Uh, my sense is that it is likely that no other state has a rule that is quite as permissive as California's. The argument from growers is that this law violates the takings clause in the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Explain what that is and how they want it to apply in this case. The takings clause of the Constitution basically says uh, that uh, if the government takes the property of a, a private citizen for public use, the government has to pay for the property that it has taken. So if the government condemns your land to build a freeway, the government has the power to condemn your land, but it has to pay for that land uh, that it has taken. Uh, in the last 30 years, an issue has arisen that we call regulatory taking. And that is where the government doesn't actually physically take the property, but by regulation, it diminishes or impairs the value or use of the property in the nature of an easement that allows non-invited people, union organizers, to come on the property and therefore the government has to pay for it. You said that growers argue this law is outdated, that it was passed before social media or when farm workers, most, for the most part, lived on farms. What do unions counter to that argument? They say, of course, that it, it is still necessary. What are their arguments? Well, their arguments are several fold. First, they say it is necessary to be able to speak with workers where they are, especially given the fact that workers may come from lots of different locations and then meet together before the workday or stay together in groups after the workday. And frankly, it's just more efficient for organizers to meet with them at those points in time. Uh, workers often will get on buses and then be driven to various fields where they work. They're dispersed, and it's very difficult to uh, keep track of them in, in that fashion. The other argument that labor makes uh, is that because election cycles are very, very quick in agriculture, because the season is short, the workers are only there for a short period of time. So if there's going to be a union election, campaigning has to be done quickly, elections have to be done quickly and the like that this, uh, this heightened access is really necessary to effectuate the purpose of the act, which is the, having farm workers have free choice in deciding whether they want to unionize. The U.S. Supreme Court has a solid conservative majority now, and past decisions have shown they're somewhat skeptical of labor rights. How might the justices rule in this case? Could the law just be overturned completely? Uh, I doubt it. Uh, it's possible that it that it could be overturned, but I think that the major concern based on the questions that the justices asked from the bench 
uh, is that this doctrine of, of regulatory taking is in danger of being expanded in a way that will be difficult to contain it. The questions from Justice Roberts, from Justice Sotomayor and others seem to be suggesting that they're looking for a way potentially to rule with the growers, but without having to expand uh, the idea that incidental government uh, restrictions on the use of property violate the Constitution. Uh, I read a blog uh, er earlier today uh, that, that gives you an idea of what is at stake, at least in one person's viewpoint, and that is that the civil rights era laws uh, where, where we said essentially that owners of private businesses that are businesses of public accommodation, hotels and the like, uh, have to allow patrons of all colors, imposes an incidental burden uh, that otherwise wouldn't be there if property owners had free choice to exclude anybody they want. Uh, but we have long since as a society grown very comfortable with the idea that that's an appropriate use of governmental power in pursuit of governmental objectives of equity and inclusion. And so I think that the majority of the Supreme Court is very much aware uh, that this doctrine, uh, if, if expanded to make potentially a taking out of uh, uh, relatively minor intrusions of governmental power, uh, is, is troublesome. And some of the justices on the court, as I'm sure you know, are... Um, our, our fans, if you will, or have shown uh, an awareness of uh, the importance of government being able to function uh, without significant restriction. Others seem to be more sensitive to property uh, rights, but the uh, I predict that there will be uh, an alliance of different viewpoints in this decision when it comes out that will be very non-traditional. I've been speaking with University of San Diego law professor Richard Paul, and Richard, thank you. You're very welcome. The coronavirus pandemic has shaken up the state's criminal justice system. For months, courts were closed and many inmates were released early as the threat of COVID raced through prisons and jails. But there is also a fundamental problem facing the legal system that's been around longer than the virus. It's the large number of people accused of crimes who've been left waiting in jail for years for their day in court. An investigative report by Cal Matters has found that there are more than 1,200 people in the state who have been in jail for more than three years waiting for their trials to begin. One man accused of murder has been waiting in jail for his day in court for 12 years. Joining me is reporter Robert Lewis, author of the Cal Matters report, Waiting for Justice. And Robert, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Is this a problem in jails and court systems throughout the state? It is. I mean, up and down the state, uh, many courts within California just have had historically a difficult time closing cases in a timely manner. And the pandemic has, has certainly made the situation uh, worse in a lot of places. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser calculated that approximately 350 people have been in San Diego County Jail waiting a year or more for trial. But it was hard to get a firm number on that. Did you also encounter that problem? 
It's it's a huge issue. Uh, there there is not good data on this, which which just completely calls into question the ability of of state judicial branch administration to uh, to provide any effective oversight. Um, they're they're just. I asked a number of of sort of state bodies trying to figure out basic questions about how long cases are taking, how many people are behind bars for extended periods of time, and it just doesn't exist. And so I ended up having to put in uh, public records requests to uh, all 58 county sheriff's departments, uh, scrape online inmate locators, use court records to, to really just try to even begin to understand uh, the scope of the problem. Are there racial disparities involved in who winds up behind bars for years before their trials? Certainly. I, I was able to get uh, racial demographic breakdowns for about 21 of the counties, and uh, the majority of the uh, pretrial detainee, uh, the unsentenced inmates in those counties, uh, do appear to be black or uh, Latino-Hispanic, uh, as listed in the in the various reports. And one small example, in, in San Francisco, where you know only about 5% of the population is black, um, 50% of the uh, unsentenced inmates who've been there for, for more than a year are black. And are jails equipped to house inmates for long periods of time? You know, the advocates that I talk to and the inmates themselves uh, say no. Um, they say that jails really aren't made to hold people for a long time. There's often not outdoor space. There's often not the same types of programs, say like educational programs for the folks inside. And so, uh, you know, w- one inmate who, who's currently there who has spent time in prison uh, said being in jail is hard time. Uh, that's, what it, that's what he called it. It's... it's um, it's really not. It's not the best situation, and and you know a number of the the inmates I talked to, you know, also said you know when you're in prison you can work on bettering yourself. It's just it's a different quality of life, and you know that the next stage from there is is home. Um, whereas you're in jail, you're locked down. Uh, there's not as much outdoor space. There's not as much to do, and you're just in this sort of state of limbo, not knowing what is going to happen to you. Now, does the recent state Supreme Court ruling that people can't be held in jail simply because they can't afford bail, does that have any impact on these cases? You know, it could have some impact going forward in in the future, um, but not an immediate impact. I mean, it's it's not like the jail doors are suddenly flung open and these people are are getting out. Um, you know, the the attorneys that I talk to say in many of these cases, uh, the def- defense attorneys are going to have to file motions for reconsideration. Judges are going to have to figure out how they're going to handle this, um, and you know, they still can decide to hold someone in jail if there's a, a public safety reason uh, or potential. If, uh, if they think they might not show back up in court. So there's a lot of, uh, while, while advocates certainly hailed that decision, uh, there's a lot that is, is left uh, in question after that decision came out. Now, in your report, you go through some of the reasons that people wind up waiting for months and years for their trials, things like court continuances, sentence enhancements, multiple defendants, cuts to court budgets. But overall, what has happened to the defendant's right to a speedy trial? Well, if if you talk to prosecutors, they put a lot of the blame on defense attorneys, and they say, "Look, there there are speedy trial rights. It's the defense attorneys who are 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 waiving those rights and and are continuously asking for continuances, asking for delays so they can prepare a case." Um, and and what prosecutors will say is their cases don't age well; that that uh, witnesses die, they they 
their memories fade. And so there is an interest for prosecutors to moving, thing, moving things quickly. However, uh, defense attorneys and advocates sort of counter and say, you know, the sentences, uh, the sentence enhancements, the, the three strikes law here in California are, are so draconian that, that they need to uh, spend extra time with these cases because the system is so stacked against their clients that if they lose, uh, you know, their clients are, are facing life behind bars. And they also uh, allege that prosecutors will, will sort of pile on the charges knowing that a, a defendant is going to sit in jail. And, and it's going to pressure them to take to take a plea deal. So um, there's sort of a lot of blame to go around. And, and you know, one thing to, to mention is, of course, the courts as well. They they have a role to play. The judges have the ability to uh, to say they're not going to grant a continuance or to or to push things to resolve more quickly. So have many of the defendants held for years refused a plea deal? Uh, conceivably, yes. I mean, the ones I talked to, a number of the attorneys I talked to, that that is the case. Um, although there's also a number of, you know, cases I looked into where there wasn't a, a plea deal on the table, or at least not in, initially, and that the prosecutors were taking a very hard line. Uh, the elected prosecutors, I should add, were taking a very hard line in specific cases. So, um, you know, every case is is different, and there are unique situations and circumstances at play. Is there any compensation for someone held for months, even years, if they are acquitted or if the case has been dropped? Likely not. Um, I mean, there are uh, civil remedies uh, available, but um, you know, the the attorneys that I talk to say it's it's those are it's fairly difficult to um, to to get money, prove a claim uh, through those routes. So so no, I mean, it's not like. Uh, you know, you're acquitted after three years behind bars, and they say, "Oops, here's a here's a whole bunch of money for your for your time." Uh, it, it doesn't really work that way. Now, your report also documents what these delays do to the victims of crime and their families. What is it like for them waiting for justice? It sounds horrible. I, I you know, I talked to a number of, of victims and victim families, and and you know, they talk a lot about about closure and wanting to to move on with their life. I, I interviewed the the mother of a of a 21 year old man who was who was murdered in Sacramento. She lives in in Texas, and she you know she flew out for the first hearing uh, with with a friend. She she flew out on the anniversary to meet the new uh, uh, prosecutor in the case. She's logged on to every Zoom hearing, and she could still have months and years of of this case dragging out. I, I talked to the brother of a woman who who was murdered nearly 12 years ago, uh, and he's just completely fed up with the judicial system. System, uh, and any hope of, of sort of closure through, through justice. And are lawmakers coming up with any answers to solve these long waits behind bars? You know, I think that's really going to be a big question going forward. Uh, you know, you talk to judges, you talk to judicial administration, and and one thing they say is that historically, for years, the the court system has been underfunded, um, and so you know, as we have this amazing uh, pandemic related backlog contributing to what the backlog that already existed, um, you know, I I do think there are some questions to the legislators, you know, at what point uh, do they, you know, use the power of the purse to, to maybe help the court system, uh, use their oversight function to, to maybe look a little bit more closely at what's going on. I've been speaking with reporter Robert Lewis, author of the Cal Matters Report, Waiting for Justice. And Robert, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen. Gang involvement has led to jail time, substance abuse, and even death. We're going to hear from an organization helping at-risk North County youth overcome their gang involvement for a chance at a new life. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne has this story about the group called Resilience. Sandra Mora grew up surrounded by gangs, drugs, and an unstable home. I didn't have nobody there, so I ended up turning into gangs. And everything that I was looking for at home, I found it in the streets. I'm a recovering addict. I started using drugs when I was 13. Um, I had some traumatic experience when I was growing up at the age of eight. And um, it just skyrocketed from there. At 21, Mora went to prison. She says prison and letting her family down were the turning points to her turbulent life. I just, you know, it was time, time to change my life around. Mora, now 45 years old, chose to give back to the community she grew up in. She is studying drug and alcohol counseling at Palomar College and expects to graduate in the next two years. Mora is also a mentor for Resilience, a nonprofit organization helping at-risk North County youth on probation or leaving juvenile detention. I love it. I'm able to give back to the community, you know, and I can relate to all the kids that I've came across you know, from them not having the support at home or their parents are doing drugs. 19-year-old Aki Del Rio is one of Mora's mentees. Well, my, my whole family is gang-related from different gangs in, in, the, in Oceanside. So uh, I just kind of grew up around that type of stuff. Like my daddy was a gang member. Uh, he died when I was in first grade. He was killed by Oceanside Police Department. Um, I grew up in foster homes and stuff. You know, my mom was a drug addict, you know, uh, I bounced from house to house. When Del Rio was in juvenile hall, Resilience reached out to him to connect him with a mentor. Del Rio had been through similar programs before. Like most people I've seen, they always have an agenda, you know what I mean? Either it's just to get finished with you so they can move on to the next person, you know, just to make their money, blah, blah, blah. But he saw a difference in Resilience. But with these people right here, like, it's real genuine and stuff, you know, and everything they do is out of the bottom of their heart and stuff, you know what I mean? All of the mentors in Resilience have a past gang affiliation or have been to prison helping them bond with their mentees. I don't want to see this kid go back to jail. He's so smart. You know, they have so much potential. And you see it. And that's part of a be about being a mentor, that you got to remind them, you know, that they're worthy of living a different lifestyle. Robert Coble is a resilience mentor. He says part of his job is showing the students there is more to life than the four corners of the city they grew up in. Um, took them to be able to do things that they've never done, um, fishing trips, kid who's never been on a boat. Um, those type of experiences we, we deal with every day. Resilience guides their youth in a variety of ways, 
from field trips and exercising together to regular meetings, helping with college enrollment and attending court hearings. And they provide mentees someone they can trust. For me, my job is to try to uh, make the ones who are going in and out of jail and are comfortable with that be uncomfortable when they go back because they experience a lot more than life has to offer. Mentors say their job never ends, and it can go as far as taking phone calls in the middle of the night to save a mentee from making a bad choice. I've stayed on the phone with one of my girls for like almost two hours, you know, just talking, laughing, just trying to get her out of that state of mind, you know what I mean, where she wants to take off, take the bracelet off that she has because she's on probation, or, you know, she wants to go get high or drink or, you know, something that's going to eventually get her caught up and go back. Del Rio has graduated from the program with no plans to go back to his old life. He hopes to join the Army at the end of the year. The program managers did a lot for me, like, got me on probation, got me to colleges, you know, it just so many opportunities they've blessed me with, you know, it just it's got me to the point where I'm at now, you know. And while he explores his opportunities, he also returns to resilience to mentor other youth that are going through what he did and showing them how resilient they can be. Joining me is KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, welcome. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Who came up with the idea of the Resilience Program? When did it start? Well, it started in 2018, and it was a pilot program that kicked off here in Oceanside by the County of San Diego Probation Department. And they based this program off of the Credible Messenger Program in New York. And although it launched in 2018, you know, it took a little bit of time to recruit mentors because they really wanted mentors that grew up here in North County and just knew the area, knew the problems happening in the community. So that's kind of how, you know, it started. The counseling method sounds a lot like Alcoholics Anonymous with the mentor system. I'm wondering, is there any overall guiding philosophy or religious affiliation involved? You know, it, it is really similar. And I think what's really special about this program is that, you know, the mentors bond with the mentees because they have a similar past. Um, you know, they grew up in the, in, the, in the area. They have maybe a gang affiliation. They've had maybe similar drug use. Um, they've experienced traumas like domestic violence at home. Maybe the parents are gone. They're working all the time. So I think, I think that's what really makes this program special is that the, you know, mentors just have gone through a lot of the experiences that the mentees are now going through. You know, although there is no religious affiliation, I think that, you know, if maybe a mentor does you know, bond with a mentee over that. I mean, it's, you know, ultimately one more thing that they can relate to each other with. Is resilience mentoring part of any court ordered program for kids in juvenile hall? You know, it's not court ordered. The San Diego Probation Department does refer youth to the program, but it's really voluntary. I mean, although they're referred, you know, the youth has the, you know, makes the choice to go or not. And is the group exclusively focused on North County? You know, this program, Resilience, is. It's um, in Oceanside and Vista. So it's, it's youth that are on probation in Oceanside and Vista. And then obviously some of them have moved throughout North County. So then as long as they were residents in Oceanside and Vista, they can participate in the program. But now because the program has been so successful, the County of San Diego is expanding into Central San Diego. So Southeast San Diego, Lemon Grove, City Heights area. One of the young men you spoke with said he, quote unquote, graduated from the resilience program. What does it take to graduate? 
You know, it can mean so many different things, but because of the program requirements, you need to attend group sessions. So there's a certain lim limit that you need to attend of the group sessions. You also need to meet with your mentor one-on-one. -on -one. But now it can go beyond that. So Aki, he actually got off probation. He graduated from high school, took a couple college courses. And so now he's looking to join the army at the end of this year, hopefully. So now the army is willing to take him as long as he removes his tattoos. And again, because of all the work that he has accomplished and all the accolades that, you know, he has because of resilience. And where does resilience get its funding? The main funding comes from San Diego Probation Department. And so um, Vista Community Clinic is who gets the funding and they facilitate the program. And so, you know, their funding is very minimal. The program manager told me that, you know, the funding that they get does provide some field trips, but it's more things like fishing, hiking, kayaking. Before the pandemic, they were able to do more things like go um, to L.A., go on a couple of road trips, go to K1, you know, the speedways. But, you know, because of the pandemic and that limited funding, I mean, you know, the field trips aren't as extensive as they'd like them to be. And how much of an effect has the pandemic had on the resilience program? From speaking to the program manager, Jimmy, you know, he said the pandemic has been a big challenge on the program because, you know, it doesn't really end the problems that these youth are facing. I mean, he told me about shooting still happening the week that we went into quarantine and broad daylight at parks. You know, some of these parents are very limited with money, so they still have to go to work to be able to provide food. The drug use still continue, domestic violence. A lot of these kids are, you know, facing um, anxiety. And so at the beginning, they they did go virtual for, you know, maybe one to two months. But after that, they realized they needed to continue the group sessions because they were ultimately an outlet for these youth. This is the group sessions are providing a way for them to get out of that toxic environment. And so they started distributing foods in the neighborhood and just started to do more outdoors things like fishing and hiking once, you know, once the rules eased up a little bit. And can any at-risk kid reach out to the resilience program? Not anybody, you know, it's it's a tough age. So I don't know if any kid, you know, wants to go. But um, so the youth does need to be on probation in order to join. But, you know, again, the referrals happen organically. Once the group of kids that's already there sees how fun it is and just how they can put their differences aside and just, you know, what the program the opportunity the program gives them, I think they start talking to their friends and amongst themselves, you know, amongst the kids that are on probation and just invite them over and, you know, hopefully gives them a new chance at life. I've been speaking with KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. As more people get vaccinated against COVID-19, researchers are trying to understand how the vaccine interacts with our bodies. While there are a number of ways to test the efficacy of a vaccine once it's been administered, one San Diego biotech company is soliciting San Diegans stool samples to analyze how the vaccine interacts with our gut microbiomes. Midday Edition's Jade Hindman spoke with Stephanie Culler, CEO of Persephone Bioscience, to learn more. How is it that data gathered from stool samples can give us a better understanding of how our body interacts with the COVID vaccine? Yeah, so, so our, most people don't actually know that our GI tract is actually one, our largest immune organ. 80% of our immune cells are in our GI tract. 
And so they have a profound impact on actually how well we respond to vaccines, how well we deal with disease and in prevention of disease and immune health in our bodies. And as many of us know, the GI tract is home of the gut microbiome, these trillions of microbes that exist within our gut and the bacteria that we have in our gut and what they produce, what do they do, has a tremendous impact on our overall immune health and, and, and our health to prevent and fight disease. And so it's actually the types of microbes that we have can impact how well we respond to vaccines. And so the only way really to study what's in our gut is by looking at stool samples or otherwise known as poop. <laughs> is there a precedent for collecting data through this, this unusual method? Yes, our, our company, as well as um, several others in the space, as well as academics um, locally at UC San Diego with the Microbiome Institute there um, have been profiling the microbiome for the last almost 20 years now. And so, um, and, and we've been doing it has been through collection of, of stool samples. Um, our company has, has namely focused in cancer, where we have found that um, the kinds of bacteria that cancer patients have in their gut impact how well they respond to the latest curative cancer drugs. And how are you reaching out to the community to find participants for this study? This is a very much a grassroots effort. So you can imagine we're a small biotech company um, incubating inside of J Labs, which is part of Johnson & Johnson Innovation. And we've been reaching out in several ways. One, through our friends and family network, our, our academic um, colleagues, but, but also through social media, through, through Facebook, um, as well as um, Instagram and, and other platforms. Um, and so that, that's been what's been really helpful for us is, is targeting the community through those efforts. It's important to note that diversity in these studies is also important. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, and as we've seen with, with the pandemic, it's really um, put a light or a spotlight on, on the challenges we faced in clinical studies where um, you know ethnic and racial minorities are normally not included or representative sufficiently um, in the drug development process. And as we've seen with COVID-19 in particular, that these groups, ethnic, racial minorities, the elderly, have been most impacted um, and have been showing you know, the most impact from the severity of the disease itself. And so our study is meant to address that. 50% of study participants are aimed to come from these ethnic and, and racial communities that have been most impacted so that we could truly understand um, the impact of the gut microbiome on vaccination response, but how, how are people in the real world and in these subpopulations very much um, reacting to the vaccines? And what is the team behind the study really hoping to find? I mean, are they looking to confirm any existing theories about how the vaccine affects our bodies? In some regards, yes. Um, and we want to understand the immunity that people have to it and, and when, when they fail. So, for example, we know that there are variants going around in our communities. And how is that impacting vaccine response? Our ultimate goal as, as a company, actually, is to develop a microbiome therapeutic an orally deliver pill that contains the right bacteria to stimulate your immune system to respond most effectively to a vaccine. Are there plans to increase the scope and scale of this study once this initial trial is done? 
Yes, absolutely. This initial trial is really meant to get us data as quick as possible so we can publish this in the scientific community. But we want to scale nationwide to over 10,000 participants and, and are looking to partner up with other academic institutions, those manufacturing the vaccines that we are all receiving, um, as, as well as perhaps other healthcare providers um, like a CVS Health or Walgreens. In what ways do you hope this study creates a clearer picture of what we know about the various COVID-19 vaccines? Yes, um, I, I think what's been missing here, and we're just starting to get that, is real-world data. We, we have been hearing on the news data coming from clinical trials, but as we can imagine, those are very structured settings. So what, what we were really trying to aim at is in the real population, our country, how are we most responding to the vaccines? And, and are there ways to improve that? Are there ways for the next generation of vaccines to take data from this study and make them better and make them work for everybody. You know, um, most medications are not a one size fits all. Well, how can we take this data to make sure that these vaccines are indeed a one size fits all? And I, I understand that you're looking at the stool samples, you're, you're observing the bacteria that's in those samples. What about the virus itself? Do you anticipate finding the virus in any of those samples? That is a possibility. And so what we're doing, and especially once we get to the national scale, getting looking at thousands of study participants, is if they do unfortunately get the coronavirus, we will be sending out a kit to them to be able to sequence, to understand which variant in particular. And as some studies have shown, um, it does look like there is a GI-related impact on severe cases of COVID-19. Specifically, um, unhealthy microbiomes have been linked to severe COVID-19 responses. And so that's something that we're, we're looking at as well. I've been speaking with Stephanie Culler, CEO of Persephone Biosciences. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Kavanaugh. Jade Hindman is off today. Lots of love stories in our region involve people from opposite sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. In its most recent season, KPBS border podcast Port of Entry focused on some of these cross-border love stories and expanded beyond just romantic love. The latest episode, for instance, is about the love between an American expat, Dania Gresham, and the orphaned kids she now takes care of in Tijuana. Okay, so six years ago, Dania Gresham left behind her life as a real estate broker in Las Vegas and started a new life here at the border. It's quiet right now. We're on the east side of Tijuana. We asked Dania to record an audio diary for us to sort of show us what a typical day is like for her. So it is about, I don't know, if I'm rushing, like maybe a minute walk <laughs> from my apartment to the Casa Hogar and through this neighborhood that I have grown to, yeah, love, I guess. 
These days, Dania's life revolves around the Casa Hogar she and her friends started back in 2015. It's essentially a group home for kids, an orphanage. ¿Qué quieres? Cereal. Okay. ¿Qué tipo de cereal? The Casa Hogar Dania helps run houses up to 25 kids. Right now, 12 kids call it home, including this little guy you hear jumping on a trampoline outside the orphanage. It's Dania. It is now 7.31. I am just going into the house. There shouldn't be any kids up quite yet. Until recently, Dania lived at the orphanage in Tijuana with the kids. But over the holidays, she finally raised enough money from friends, family, and supporters to pay for a small apartment just a few blocks away. So now she walks to work. The day Dania recorded her audio diary, she had the early shift. So right now it's super quiet here. Uh, Maria is up. Maria and her sister Rosa are usually the first ones up. They have to take medicine uh, at 8 o'clock. So let's see what's going on in the house. So, nope, I didn't think so. Nobody's up yet. So we're going to take a few minutes and get situated, get the girls their medicine, and then we'll start waking kids up. After the kids get up, they make their beds and do some other cleaning and chores. Except Sammy. Sammy's not cleaning. Oh, Santa Claus brought the zombies? Okay. Okay. So, Sammy's not cleaning. Sammy's playing right now with me at the table. <laughs> so. breakfast and getting the girls up today and so because I'm in charge of breakfast we're having cold cereal so that's what I'm about to do I'm about to make some powdered milk up so it doesn't taste like powdered milk and they're gonna eat sucaritas eat chuckle crispies and that's gonna be breakfast today because Michelle is in charge of the wonderful home-cooked meals and I'm in charge of the <laughs> cold cereal After breakfast, Dania often does paperwork. Then she takes the kids to their psychiatry and therapy appointments. She'll help clean, cook, and as often as she can, she'll sit down to play with kids like Sammy. The day Dania recorded was actually supposed to be one of her days off. So she was set to leave early, but that didn't happen. So I'm leaving the house right now because I was only supposed to be here until one. But not that that was a pipe dream, <laughs> but one of our girls, um, you know, she had, their, we call them berinches, and they're stronger than a temper tantrum. They're up along the lines of a fit, kind of along that line. So um, I am going to go home now, though, and uh, 
try to relax a little bit before I have a meeting at 2 with a church um, about somehow partnering with us or being involved with us somehow. So we have a Zoom meeting. So my days are not that exciting, but that's what today is. And then I'll be back tomorrow morning. Orphanages in Mexico get very little government support. So it's up to people like Dania to raise money to keep them going, mostly through building relationships with churches in the U.S. It's a lot of pressure. I mean, imagine just constantly having to ask people to pitch in every single day. So it's hard. It's hard. Dania and the other folks who help run the Casa Hogar they have all these little lives depending on them. Not only to house, feed, and educate them, but to love them, too. The love is that these kids, they don't have anybody that's going to stand up for them except us. And that was Dania Gresham talking with Port of Entry host Alan Lilienthal. To hear how Dania ended up in Tijuana taking care of those kids, listen to the full episode online or find Port of Entry on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.